0: Hello, my name is Curtis Merriweather Jr. You are listening to the Business Theologist Podcast. This podcast is for new and seasoned business professionals looking to uncover knowledge gems. This podcast is unlike other business podcasts because we endeavor to create a synergistic relationship between business, management, scholarship, and theology. In addition to being an executive leader, I am also a doctoral candidate. The insights shared on this podcast will give you an edge over the competition. Whether you're an entrepreneur, intrapreneur, or executive leader, or someone looking to change careers, I invite you to travel along this learning journey with me. Buckle up and let's get ready for the ride. Let's go. And in today's episode, we have a special guest, someone who's very near and dear to me, Mr. Dr. Richard Boyatzis. He is a well-established and using the intentional change theory, complexity theory. Uh, Dr. Boyatzis has continued to research how people and organizations engage in sustainable desired change. The theory predicts how change occur in different groups of human organizations, including teams, community, country, and global change. Ongoing research supporting his theory includes developing new and better measures of an individual's emotional, social, and cognitive intelligence, as well as studies that demonstrate the relationship between these abilities and performance. His latest research includes FMRI studies to establish neuroendocrine, had a tough time getting that one out, Uh, arousal of coaching to the positive emotional attractor and resonant leadership. Boyatzis is a professor at the Department of Organizational Behavior, Psychology, and Cognitive Sciences at Case Western Reserve University, as well as the H.R. Horvitz Chair in Family Business. He is an adjunct professor at the International Society Business School. Boyatzis has special awards at Case Western Reserve for research, two awards for teaching, and two awards for service. He is the Distinguished University Professor at Case Western. He's written more than 175 um articles and seven books he is a frequent speaker on the international circuit having delivered speeches and seminars in all seven continents and 32 countries he has consulted to many fortune 500 companies government agencies and organizations in the Americas, Europe and Asia on various topics including executive and management development, organization structure, culture change, R&D, productivity, economic development, selection, promotion, performance appraisal and career planning. His massive online open online courses MOOC inspiring leadership through emotional intelligence has over 510,000 students enrolled through Coursera from over 215 countries. Boyasis has a Ph.D., an M.A. in social psychology from Harvard University, and a Bachelor of Science in Aeronautics and uh, Astronautics from MIT. So welcome to the, to the, to the show, Dr. Richard. Um, man, you've done a lot. Thank
1: you, Curtis. Yeah, you, I feel tired just listening to your intro.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> The central issue that you have raised uh, in talking about this podcast is, you know, what makes for great leaders? And by that, you don't just mean big names or high Q levels. You're talking about effective leaders. And how do people change to either be more effective as leaders or just as people? So it starts with what makes a great leader. And I would like to answer in two parts of it. One is what are the internal ingredients which are less traits and much more, if you will, behavioral, I call them competencies. Uh, You could think of them as behavioral habits. But there, most people um, who are, when you do the actual research on performance, on leadership effectiveness at all different levels of leadership from project leadership to uh, organizations, you find that it's, A very, very interesting mix that 80% of the difference between the effective and the less effective leaders is accounted for by things that we call emotional and social intelligence. How do you handle your own emotions? How do you build relationships and handle the emotions of other people? I mean, a lot of people think it's all down to smarts. It's not. There are a lot of really smart people who end up You know, becoming, you know, uh, terrorists, bombers, or uh, end up in backroom wards because they can't handle ordinary life, or the more functional ones find solace in the basement of their mother's house (laughs) working on their computers. So while being intelligent, cognitively intelligent, is important, of course it is, it actually, within a range that most of us in professional executive roles have, that's what we need we don't need more of it but what we need a lot of are the things that i call the hard skills the building relationships managing yourself so whether or not in the emotional intelligence is things like emotional awareness or emotional self control or adaptability in the social awareness it's both empathy and teamwork and influence and being inspirational but it all comes down to these competencies And I'm gonna emphasize that because that's the key to the malleability or the ability to improve. That we're not talking about traits, we're talking about behavior patterns. But both of these clusters enable people who are in leadership positions or who are getting there to form better relationships. And the most effective leadership relationships, again, from the empirical research, are ones where the leader establishes a focus on the vision or the dream, the sense of purpose, not just goals, and creates a shared sense of purpose and vision. The leader encourages compassion in the sense of caring for each other, and a a sense throughout the relationships that we can count on each other. Beyond trust, we care about each other. And a sense of authenticity, that we walk the talk, we're reasonably consistent, and in the process, those stylistic things build on the emotional and social intelligence and end up, according to the research, in a lot of sectors public, private, nonprofit, in a lot of most countries of the world keep showing those are the things that predict the most effective leaders, the ones who create the most engagement, the ones who create the most organizational citizenship, and the ones who stimulate the most innovation in organizations. Wow. Wow. So that's a kind of short summary of what makes some people really effective or great at it.
0: How, how do you train someone to be a great leader? So you said a lot of things.
1: Without drugs. Without. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So no, but seriously, you know, one of the questions is, you know, are great leaders born, not made? Well, the real answer is yes, but to be more technical, Almost everything that I talked about just now is socially learned. Wow. Now, some people learn these things early in childhood. I mean, the reason why you could see people in high school that seem to be natural leaders is they've been getting this training since they were five years old. And a lot of it has to do with parents and the quality of the relationships or grandparents. Or it could have to do with um, opportunities in social clubs or church or temple uh, or at school but nobody's born with it i mean there isn't any evidence yet that anybody has been able to show that there is any early genetic disposition plus the fact that any geneticist these days actually for the past 20 better part of the last 25 years keeps saying uh, you're by the time you're 21 your genes are more determined by your environment and your experiences than what you were born with so if your genes are plastic and can change We know from recent last 10 years of research in neuroimaging that neuroplasticity is very high, that you change your brain's network and way of functioning all the time, for the better or for the worse. But you can be changed for the better, that it shouldn't surprise us that our ways of acting, our habits, our behaviors can change. Now, that change would suggest that most of the things that account for effective leaders are learned are made, wow. if you will. You're not born with them.
0: Now, I'm, I'm a cheat because I took your class in um, the <laughs> fall of 2019 when I got accepted to Case Western.
1: Yeah, so, look how effective you've been since then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, your class was completely mind-changing for me. I mean, you got into this whole notion out and you could kind of talk to the audience about this NEA versus PEA. And right. what does that mean?
1: Well, it starts with um, an overall theory of change that I've been working on since 1967. Um, and that is in pursuit of sustained desired change. I have to say that carefully because a lot of people change or do something for a few weeks and then it goes away. We're not interested in that. We're interested in sustained and desired change. So, you know, if something happens and um, you all of a sudden lose your memory that's not desired change so we're not going to really focus on that but when you you get to sustain desired change uh, my theory says that it happens through these five moments of emergence using complexity theory the main emotional driver is your vision your dream not goals but your vision or dream then you go into looking at how you really come across to others and, and if the output of the first stage of discovery is a personal vision. The output of the second is a personal balance sheet. The third is discovering a way that you are joyfully excited about learning and trying something. Toward your vision, building on strengths, work on a weakness or two. The fourth discovery is practice and experimentation with the new thoughts, feelings, or behavior. And then the fifth discovery are these resonant caring relationships that enable you to go through all those. Now, as you just mentioned, I believe there are two psychophysiological states within us. They're psychological and physiological. And again, from a term from complexity, they're like the, the positive and negative emotional attractor is what I call them. They are technically Lorenz attractors, which means they bring us around them. They don't bring us into them. And in that process, moving from the negative emotional attractor, which is a defensive, more natural state, if you will, because it's what our body does to survive. Uh, When we enter the place where we can be open to new ideas, open to other people, our cognitive powers are better, our brains are able to convert stem cells to new neurons, our immune systems are working more effectively. All that happens in this state that I call the positive emotional attractor. But the problem is, look at today you can hardly move today without getting a negative wave thrown at you. You certainly can't listen to the news, but everything comes at us and everything is increasing the degree of uncertainty and the degree of threat. All of that means that our bodies and our minds go within thousands of a second into a defensive posture. And the more we experience this stress-induced defensiveness, the more we lose our cognitive ability, we are impaired and perceptually impaired and emotionally impaired. So a lot of us think we're okay under stress. That's bull. You know, it's like the people who think they can have three drinks and still drive safely. That's delusional. You know, you might be able to have one or two drinks, especially if it's over several hours and you're eating at the same time, but by the time you get to three, you are not going to the, hit the brake pedal with the same speed. The same thing happens to our openness. I mean, look at all the self-righteous indignation that's going on in the world today, but just even in the United States. And all of that is is born. I'm not saying there aren't genuine social issues or economic issues or now health issues with COVID-19 going on, but what converts that from some sense of forward movement to everybody getting so afraid and so angry, it's because they're afraid and angry. I mean, it kind of feeds on itself. And that's at the heart of the extreme negative emotional attractor. So guess what? It doesn't help us to get angry and afraid. The negative emotional attractor does not um, invoke positive sustained change. What it does is it gets people to hunker down and people will even though they may say publicly, oh, they're all for for these things, what they do is they more institutionalize uh, their own fears, if it has to do with COVID-19, or their own prejudices, if it has to do with the racial conflicts, or, you know, these uh, conflicts about whether or not we need a police force, um, which, you know, from my perspective means, you know, somebody you know, has been smoking too much or, you know, they just don't have their eyes open <laughs> right. um, because we live in a diverse open society. And of course people will transgress, but that's not to say that anybody um, should be open to, you know, abusive treatment uh, of any sort. But I'm using the example that when you surround us with so much uncertainty that is feeling threatening, we go into the NEA as a a standard way of being. And that's a kind of lousy way to live. You know, you're scared, you're defensive. And what I'm adding to it is you are, your brain is not able to function well in that state. Your immune system is compromised. I mean, everybody's talking about these protests and how important they are. They are in one way, but given that people aren't social distancing and aren't wearing masks, the spike that's going to happen in the COVID-19 cases isn't just because people are breathing on each other. It's because they're doing it in many cases in a state of anger. Wow. You know, the Reverend Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi. And even if you go back further, Jesus did not spend a lot of time trying to work people up to be angry. They talked about steadfastly following Certain principles, but the principles were principles of us coming together and respecting each other, caring for each other. Um, and that the, I, I thought the uh, concept of nonviolent protests, especially that we saw uh, more recently with Reverend Martin Luther King's work over the decades and even Gandhi's in other parts of the world, was to tackle major social issues but to do it in a different way. So what happens is if you, that's PEA, because that talks about the hope and the dream and caring. If you do it from an NEA way, the only thing you result in is compromising people's immune system. So we're gonna have a lot more people sick because um, their immune systems are compromised during many of these events, uh, and it's gonna not bode well. But back to the theory. The research that we've done shows that when you create in a conversation more of this PEA moment, with hope, with caring, compassion, mindfulness, that a person's physiology changes. Their brain waves change. uh, Where they're activated in their brain changes. Their hormones change. And with the changes that happen, people are more open to new ideas. They're more open to people, other people. They're more open to people who are different than they are. And actually, they think more about social justice from a caring point of view, fairness, not retribution. Um, So I think we are witness to uh, daily massive doses of NEA writ large. And the one thing we can hope for is to spend loving time with our families or our friends to reach out and help others who are less fortunate, to tend to ourselves. And that's where various personal practices have been shown in multiple medical studies to activate these specific states. Meditation helps, yoga helps, tai chi helps, and prayer helps. Mm -hmm. Interesting twist on the prayer. The prayer has to be invoked to a loving God those people who are exposed to preachers or clerics who invoke retribution or they're different than they are. They're heathens. They have to be punished or die. You have to repent. You're a sinner. All that stuff invokes the opposite. That invokes the NEA. Wow. But when you pray to a loving God, when you feel, that's why I think spirituality is a better term. When you feel some alignment to, uh, life forces to some s- supernatural being you actually tune into these more open places I mean we published a study actually a paper with seven studies in it uh, a few years ago that was called why do you believe in God and there'd been a lot of stuff in the cognitive psychology literature showing that people who have more faith of any form are stupider they score less on cognitive tests wow And that's been going on for 12 15 years now um you know one of my the co-author that started it tony J, professor tony jack you know he comes from england and he said well that's part of that whole atheism movement there you know coming from the united states i'm looking at it and saying well i think it's a little prejudicial you know and there's a whole bunch of politics involved you know where if somebody expresses their faith somebody from a different political camp ends up calling them either naive stupid or whatever What we showed in these seven studies, and then the meta analysis of them put together, is that faith and the practicing of one's faith elicits the part of the brain that makes us open to new people, to people and ideas. And when we do analytic things, it closes that down. So in fact, the difference in the argument of our people who pray a lot, showing up less on cognitive tests. Yes, that's kind of consistent, but they show up much, much higher on emotional and social intelligence. Mm. And when you add them together, what you end up realizing is, um, this is where faith and spirituality can help us not only activate this part of the brain and our body and feel a sense of hope, but it also helps us to renew ourselves. And that's where, um, without a faith, without some spirituality, people lose one of the major ways they have of renewing their body, literally creating new neural tissue and helping their relationships.
0: So what I'm hearing is there has to be an effective balance between PEA, the positive emotional tractor and the idiot we're already getting a bunch of stimuli already in the negative side so really the goal here is to make sure we're doing the things on the positive side to balance out that seesaw
1: yeah that's exactly right and i'm not saying that balance is needed because i'm a libra <laughs> <laughs> uh, but and actually seven of my nine planets were in libra when uh the minute i was born but that, that's i'm joking aside I think the issue of the human body, mind, and our relationships always work out better if we're balanced. Now, because there's so much NEA around right now, for people to feel rejuvenated and open in their relationships these days, specifically now, we have to be overdoing it on the PEA. We need more. And, and my argument has been, and we actually have a paper that I'm about to submit maybe tomorrow to an academic journal. On three studies showing this, that it's more important to have more shorter doses of those renewal moments. It's better to have a whole bunch of 15 minute moments than to spend a whole hour. And it's better to have a variety of things you do during each day. So if you only prayed, even praying six hours a day might actually hurt your relationships because you're not around to cook, <laughs> to take out the garbage, you know to talk about what we're gonna do next. So a part of the magic of this thing of helping people balance is to say, uh, you you need to engage personally in more renewal and you need more small doses of it each day and you need more different types of things. If you do that, you'll find your relationships adding juice, adding energy rather than taking them away.
0: Wow. you know i had the pleasure of actually sitting in a in a set semester course with you and we learned a lot of great things but the one thing that i'd like you to talk about is you've know, you done a lot of consulting um internationally and so when you go into these large organizations and they bring you in whether that's to help with leadership whether that's whether to, to help the company kind of go through a shift in paradigm what are some of the findings that you find that really help I'm asked a twofold question: Why do leaders sometimes not evolve and change, and why does the organizations they lead not evolve as well?
1: Well, the answer to both is usually in the NEA, um, and to the extent that they function in a defensive spot, they chances are can't see beyond it. So, one of the interesting twists is that if if you're in an executive position and you've had some downturns and some bad things happen with some competitors and you sit there with your top executives and you start saying, there are, you know, our competition is eating our lunch. I need you to think outside the box. I need you to think of ways to beat them, to crush them. All you're doing is activating the NEA. And the research tells us that that by making people, putting people in that state, you close their minds to open thinking. So people in that state can't think outside the box because they can't see the box. So the dilemma is that when you feel defensive, mildly or otherwise, all sorts of bad things happen. In the strategy field, they've shown repeatedly, it's called competition neglect. Narcissism is a form of being defensive. And if people say, hey, we are the greatest company in the world in X, nobody can come close. Guess what? You just ensured your downfall. Because as soon as a competitor sees an opening, they're gonna eat your lunch. Wow. Because You're not watching them. You're not watching changes in technology. You're not watching changes in the marketplace. You're not watching changes. I remember writing a paper in 1979 with a good friend and colleague of mine, John Cotter from Harvard Business School. And one of the things we said was going to transform organizations, and human resources over the next 10 to 30 years was a true change in the nature of the workforce. Now, most people today that go to work aren't old enough to remember as recent as the 70s, when you would rarely find a manager, nevertheless an executive, who was female, unless it was an industry that was very female-friendly, like Uh, fashion or market research. You would hardly ever find somebody who was black unless it happened to be focusing on black cosmetics. Uh, You would hardly ever find somebody who was Asian, whether Indian or Chinese. So all of a sudden, you know, we, we, I mean, I know there are still a lot of social problems, And all of the isms are sadly very alive in our society and work. I'm not excusing that in any way, shape, or form or underplaying it. But I got to say the nature of the workforce, all you have to do is walk into any organization and it looks different. Uh, And beyond that, if you look at the people in power, it's slow, but there is a dramatic difference. And a lot of people don't understand that that means we have to lead and manage differently because to have a conversation with people who look at things differently is the one hope we have of innovation, but it also means if you don't encourage difference of opinion, if you don't encourage dialogue among people who look at something a different way, then what you're going to do is shut out the benefit of diversity of thought.
0: What is true diversity to you, Rich? You bring up a, a great point about diversity. I think most of the time diversity is limited to the color of one's skin, but you know we we took some instruction from you. You talked about the diversity of thought and ideas. Can right. you talk about diversity from right. your perspective?
1: I think it's all of those, of course. Though those things that are visible are dramatic because they affect people every day, and it could be color, it could be gender. It could be social class in terms of how you're dressed or how you talk. Uh, I like to point out to folks that are focused on one interpretation of color diversity, uh, that while in the United States, whites may have been up until recently or soon the the majority. But if we go to other places, I mean, when I spend time in Kenya, uh, the major issue there are the tribal members of the Kikuyu, and if you're a maasai or if you're in any one of the other tribes you know who's Kikuyu and who isn't because they are the ones who are the bosses and or they used to be in most of the organizations i mean this this happens i mean i end up uh, meeting people from nigeria you know in various sometimes in professional settings sometimes in uh, business settings and whatever it is I, I very, um, and I have a pretty good, I think I have a hundred percent track record in the past 15 years of within a few minutes, uh, guessing which of the major tribes they're from. And part of it is, uh, in Nigeria, you know, you've got three major tribes and you've got the Yoruba, you've got the Ebo and you've got the Hausa. Now they all look black. Right. And but their tribal differences are signaled different ways. So all I'm saying is that when you're in a country where the predominant color or race is something other than white, um, other factors will take on. So in China, for example, one of the issues they're still wrestling with is Han, the people of the Han original ethnicity, are seen as the true Chinese and everybody else is an interloper, which surprises the hell out of 600, 800 million people there. Uh, But so yes, we have visible measures of diversity, but we also have diversity of, and I mentioned social class, you might telegraph social class by the way you dress or talk, but you also may show social class differences by what you've been exposed to. So I remember one of the tests on one of the exams I had to take to get into my doctoral program, it was called the Miller analogies test. And you had to say, um, a, a symphony is to a concerto as wine is to, and you had to fill in that last thing. Well, the correct answer was Brandy, uh, of, of the choices that they gave you. But, having grown up a child of immigrants from greece my father by the time he got out of fighting for the u.s after going through europe um went into the restaurant business he was a waiter so even though my parents valued education obviously my sister and brother and i all have a lot of degrees um the fact is that at that point at the age of what 21 I didn't know the difference between a symphony and a concerto. Right. So, and and that's not because I was dumb, I wasn't. It was because of a social class issue. So social class can affect what we're exposed to. Um, Other diversity of thought is different ways of looking at things. So a lot of people are familiar with Myers-Briggs as a personality trait. You know, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Um, are you agreeable or defensive? Are you neurotic or stable? You know, these differences. Interestingly enough, having those personality differences present in a discussion helps you. I mean, you could imagine a conversation about um, using Zoom and online remote interactions among a whole bunch of introverts. They would say, okay, but I don't want too many. Right. And the extroverts are saying, oh my God, I don't get enough. Um, And in fact, there was a joke going around from an Italian colleague of somebody who was so uh, scheduled with his Zoom meetings and other things and online classes that he couldn't schedule a conversation with one of his friends for three weeks. And one of my former PhD students, who's an introvert, said, well, that's what happens when you self-isolate extroverts. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, diversity of thought is not is also important. Um, and today, um, we've got people that are members of either two dominant political parties in the U.S., but. 68% of the people actually don't identify with either one of those, but with some combination of them. So you in fact have a whole bunch of parties and a whole bunch of people don't fit into any party. So one of the issues that we have become horrible at is having conversations, respectful conversations with people who have different philosophical or political or orientations. and until we stop seeing those differences as sources of stupidity or naivete or racism or anything like that and start seeing them as different ways to look at it, we're not going to get beyond it. I mean, one of the smartest things that President Clinton did, in my view, was to institute his Workfare program. A key part of his Workfare program was to provide a de-escalating scale of benefits, what we used to call welfare benefits or job benefits, as a person got back to work. So it wasn't like it turned it off. And today, I've talked to a whole lot of employers who are having trouble people, getting people to come back to work because they're making almost twice on unemployment what they could make if they went back to work. Wow. And I would say the current plan doesn't encourage people to work their way back to work. And and it was sad that the Clinton Workfare program was disbanded, predominantly, um, somewhere, I think it was during the Obama administration actually, but um, it was disbanded because I thought that was the one way that helped people, um, really helped people who were trying to get another break. Um, because sometimes people need help and just because you have a job doesn't mean you can turn off the support.
0: Right. Um, True. That, that brings me to another question. So you talk, you're really talking about really a leadership issue here. Do you think leadership is most prevalent or most important higher up the organization, middle tier, or on the line? Where do you think leadership is most critical?
1: On the line. On the line. It's the smaller that's more important. Let me use an example. I don't know how many of your listeners or followers are in family businesses. Or how many are in small businesses? But I was uh, just talking, that's why the uh, Parthenon is behind me. I was just talking to 35 CEOs in Athens at a several hour interaction. And one of the questions they were talking about is the fact that in Greece, 75, 80% of the people work for small, mostly family businesses. Turns out that's the statistic almost everywhere in the world, including in the US. So you start to realize that most people work for organizations where there are 50 to 100 people at most working there. Everybody focuses on the big companies because the numbers are high, but if you look at all of society, um, that's not where the jobs are. Now, sometimes you need a big company to create the spin-off effects to have, to hire cleaners and people who provide food service and all that, but anyway, any rate. So I would say one of the most important places for people to be demonstrating the characteristics of really effective leaders is in small organizations. Wow. Because Thank the emotional you, intensity is higher.
0: Now, you yourself led an organization for quite some time.
1: Yeah, and I led it from 12 people up to 110 in uh, 11 years as CEO and then the COO of another one that had about 100 people too. And, um, but fundamentally, when you think about I mean, it was a line in one of the books. I think it was in Marcus um, Bellingham's first book, um, Buckingham's first book, First Break All the Rules. He repeated a finding that we know from research and management is that people don't leave organizations, they leave managers. Mm. It reminds us that, you know, if you look at the single most important place to intervene, if you want people to grow up to be relatively healthy, caring, Citizens and human beings is the family. You know, you have to look at the leadership of the family. Now, whether it's parents or grandparents, whoever's providing the leadership. And um, that's not just happenstance. I mean, the single most likely predictor of who gets ahead in terms of measures of job advancement and success is education, formal education. I, mean, I don't know if it's causal, but it certainly is predictive. The single strongest predictor of who graduates from not just high school, but college and sometimes graduate degrees is whether or not their parents read and they saw their parents reading. And within that, the single highest predictor is whether or not their parents read to them when they were a small child. Wow. So you start to appreciate the fact, and this goes back to the leaders are born or made not born, is that things that happen in the smallest unit that we have in our society, the family, or the family unit, um, ends up being powerful. So, yes, it's really important that the top of any organization, you know, CEOs and presidents of countries model appropriate behavior. And when they don't, it leads us to question their appropriateness. It also leads us to question the authenticity of why we should do it. But when you say what affects most people's engagement, their motivation to bring their talent to work, their motivation to be caring, to be hopeful, to, be in, to practice ingenuity, to make innovations, it's their immediate manager.
0: Well, I remember, I remember we, did a, I did a, we did an exercise in class we had to go and talk about, I think this was maybe the first class we talked about who was that leader that was most effective?
1: That, and actually, the way I worded the instruction was: yeah. What leader that you worked with or for brought out the best in you?
0: Let's let's close with a, with a final question, and that question would be: um, In terms of coaching, I want you to talk briefly about. What's the difference between coaching for compliance? You got it. This is the day and age we've seen. Everyone is an education company. Yeah. Everyone is teaching. So what's the difference between coaching for compliance to get an end result versus versus coaching for compassion? We'll wrap coaching,
1: coaching with compassion is to try to help somebody. You don't have to be a formal coach. You could be a parent, manager, physician, nurse. Coaching with compassion is to try to help another person get into the positive emotional attractor. Wow. Wow. Versus coaching for compliance, which is what I think we typically do unintentionally often is coaching for compliance in which we're pushing the other person. You know, we want to efficiently get them better. We want to fix them and we give them tips and how do they feel? They feel like they've been bullied. Hmm. And it invokes this negative emotional attractor, which means they literally don't do the very things we want them to do. So it's a little counterintuitive that even though you intend well, you have to focus on what the other person is experiencing in the process, not what your desired end result is. And if you're just telling them how to act, you're saying, That's why we call it Coaching for Compliance. You're trying to get them to comply with your view of what you want them to do. And that's very different than to draw out from them, where are their hopes and dreams? What is their moral code? What is the thing that rings their chimes, that gets them excited and makes them want to give their all? That's, in that context, that's where we can reach people the most holistically.
0: Wow. Thank you so much, Rich. I appreciate the time that you spent with us today. You have been a tremendous asset, and I pray that our audience and our listenership take something away from this conversation. I had the joy of spending a whole semester with you, but hopefully in this less than an hour conversation, they were able to pull something from this as well.
1: Well, and you're a great role model in the sense that you are not just a serial entrepreneur, but you are truly an innovator. And you're a really nice guy to have a conversation with. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <Richard. laughs> yeah, and I seem to recall that, you know, more often than not in all of our conversations, you know, we can get serious stuff done, but we can also have a few laughs, which ends up being a part of being human. Absolutely. So thank you, Curtis.
0: No, thank you, Richard. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to belabor you, man. Hey, thank you again. And I <laughs> nice. hope you have an amazing day. And as always, if I could do anything for you, Richard, please let me know.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye, Curtis.
0: All right, sir. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Business Theologist podcast. Please share, subscribe, and rate this podcast so others can find us too. If you would like to connect with me, please use the links in the show notes of this episode. Please feel free to connect with me on social media as well. I welcome the opportunity to connect and hear from you. Have a blessed week. Until next time.